As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a very special guest for us today. His name is Gabor Mate. This is somebody who helped me get sober seven years ago without his knowledge. This is someone who has been a pioneer in the field of addiction recovery and so many other ways. I want to jump right in and just say heartfelt from my family, my son, myself, and all the people whom I have touched with their sobriety. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, what a can't imagine a better introduction. No, there isn't. Um, I want to jump right in. You were born in 1914, Jewish in Budapest. 1914. 1944. Pardon me. That would be that would be a very strange feat. <laughs> you don't need to make me any older than I are. <laughs> 1944, two years before my parents, uh, uh -huh. Jewish in Budapest under German occupation. Right. I would like to know first and foremost, because I think this is the main thrust of your work, how did your early life inform the movement of your work? Well, first of all, by informing the movement of my life, uh, I carried a heavy burden. Uh, you know, my wife and I had a discussion this morning and uh, she's still noticing the, the, the traumatic imprints resonating in, in our interaction sometimes. Hmm. And given that it affected my life, and at a certain point, I came to realize that my life was not the life that I was meant to have. I had to start looking at the sources of my own travails and difficulties. And at the same time, in my medical work, hmm. I would notice the same patterns in my patients with chronic illness, from cancer to autoimmune disease, with so-called mental health diseases, and I say so-called advisedly, also with addictions, of course, so that my own work on myself and my professional work really meshed uh, to impel me to investigate trauma, its impacts on human beings, and its healing. Right. When you were born, uh, obviously under German occupation, the story goes that you were actually handed off for a month of time around the age of one from your mom to somebody she didn't know in order to ensure your safety. And I think that this is kind of what you're referencing, but also there's something deeper, which is that, as you've mentioned before in your talks, Jewish families, kids of Jewish families, were very stressed out, crying often with very real chronic travails, let's say because of the stress of their parents. And I just want to focus on that for a moment because many parents listen to this. And of course, many people who were the kids of extremely stressed parents or addicted parents are also listening. 
And so I want us, sort of all of us to come together around this shared understanding that when parents have stress, the children suffer greatly. Yes. So it is true that when I was just under a year old, year old, my mother gave me to a stranger in the street in her um, desperation to save my life. She could not ensure even her own existence. But the year previous also left its indelible mark because with the death of her own parents in Auschwitz, the threat that we lived under that whole year, the absence of my father in forced labor made her, as you can imagine, and living under anti-Semitic laws, mm. uh, made her very stressed, depressed, terrorized. And infants simply absorb the stresses of their parents. And they don't do that because of any intention on the part of the mother or the father. Children just automatically do it. That's just what they do. And since they don't differentiate between the parent and themselves, they're totally fused with the parent. The parent's pain becomes their own pain, which of course is nobody helped them to discharge. Hmm. So as, as one of my teachers, Almas points out, when the mother suffers, the baby suffers too. Right. And not only does the baby suffer, the baby makes that mean something about themselves. Right. Yes, you've mentioned this in previous talks too. I've watched a lot of them. And you also say that children are by very nature in, in the best possible way to ensure their own survival narcissistic. And that turns out to be the case of kids of burned out, stressed out, freaked out, addicted parents. They think it's about them naturally. You know, um, I've talked about this before, and in my new book, I describe it, but I'm 77 now, and when I was, say, 72, I think, I underwent a psychedelic treatment session with, um, with a really fine therapist. And I took the psilocybin, mm. and I was lying there on the mat, and um, I knew very well that I was 72 years old, that I was with a therapist. I knew that she was who she was, and I was who I was in the world. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was experiencing myself as a one-year-old child. Oh, wow. And she was my mother. So I had this double consciousness, really. Of course. So I was present as an adult, but also being a one-year-old infant. And I started crying, and I said to her, my quote-unquote mother, I'm so sorry I made your life so difficult. Oh, heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, it was Oof. It's heartbreaking for any child to, to, to go through that. It was liberating for me to, to recognize what I had taken on at that age. Right. Wow. Big fan, big supporter of uh, psychedelic, psychiatric um, interventions and treatments here. So... And also a Jew. So all of this is very salient for me. Um, you talk often about healthy anger and how the immune system works around the expression of healthy anger. And I'm taking this from hearing you say that you, you felt a lot better saying these 
you know, recognizing your own travails as a one-year-old child. Um, I know that in the world right now, a lot of us are suffering from various degrees of anger at various current events and uh, surrounding narratives. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how healthy anger actually protects your immune system and how repression degrades it. Right. So it's interesting because I'm just writing, I'm just finishing revising my new book, um, uh, which is entitled The Myth of Normal Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And, wow. I, and I've just finished revising my chapter on the trauma that infuses our politics. Right. Now, let me circle around a little bit. We're, we're wired for anger. The great uh, late tragically late, neuroscientist Dr. Yak Panksep researched the emotional circuits that we share in common with other mammals. CARE is one of them, and he capitalized these, so CARE, C-A-R-E, which is our instinct to nurture the vulnerable and the small. Without that, we don't survive. Then he identified the circuitry for what he called panic grief, which is the response of a young one to abandonment. And there was a circuitry for lust, for seeking, and so on. There's also circuitry for rage, R-A-G-E. Again, he capitalized these circuits. Right. And rage is there for self-defense. If somebody's intruding or threatening your boundaries, you mount a rage response. Ah, get away! Right. That's healthy. The suppression of it is a source of pathology. And so when I was working in palliative care, but also in family practice, I couldn't help but notice that the people who got sick with chronic illnesses, I'm talking about all manner of autoimmune diseases from fibromyalgia to chronic fatigue to multiple sclerosis to rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and so on, and malignancy, they had certain personality traits that I just kept noticing. One of them was the repression of healthy anger. Then I did the research, and it turns out that the repression, of, because of the mind-body unity, because these emotional circuits are literally part and parcel of the same apparatus that regulates the immune system and the nervous system and the gut and the hormonal apparatus, when something happens in one aspect of this really complex circuitry, but unitary circuitry, it affects the other aspects. So the repression of anger actually represses immunity on a cellular level. So what happens in autoimmune disease is that the immune system actually turns against you, just as repressed anger turns against you. Or your capacity to resist malignant transformation is reduced. Wow. So when you repress healthy anger, you're actually threatening your body's integrity. And the finding of healthy anger is often very therapeutic for people with physical illnesses, not to mention, of course, with depression and so on. Now, then there is unhealthy anger, which is what we're seeing in a lot of our politics. So healthy anger is about the present moment. You're threatening my boundaries? No. That's healthy anger. It's that simple. Unhealthy anger is a triggering of emotional memories from the past. And it doesn't exhaust itself. So what we're seeing in our politics these days, like all this COVID rage that people have, 
you know, this mistrust of authority and all these phantasmagorical conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. they are imprints of childhood trauma. Those people that believe these theories were actually, like I was just writing about this Florida pastor who's with a large following who believes that the vaccine was developed by the Bill Gates Foundation and the government to implant microchips into our circulation so they can, they can control us. Hmm. Now, if this man walked into a doctor's office and he said that Martians are trying to control me by putting microchips into my circulation to establish an interplanetary dictatorship, he declared a harmless paranoid schizophrenic. But because he's saying this in the political realm, he's got tens of thousands of followers. Oh, wow. And I'm very sure that was really acting out was really expressing is there was a time in his life when he was small and helpless and controlled by people who are supposed to help him, but in fact hurt him or didn't protect him. He was, and he's transferring the emotional imprint of that early trauma into his political views in the present. Right. So that's unhealthy anger. And that's the distinction. And you've talked in the past also, and really to sort of bring this home into the physiological realm that when you have uh, repressed emotions, the activity of your NK cells, natural killer cells, yeah, diminishes. Diminishes, which means that your body is less able and apt to fight such things as malignancies, blood cancer, so forth. Yeah, well, absolutely. Look, there was a study of, um, they followed 2,000 women uh, over a 10 year period. And those who were unhappily married, but they repressed their emotions, were four times as likely to die in those 10 years than the women who are unhappily married, but they express how they felt. I am thinking of my mom right now. She passed away almost six years ago. It's, I compare her a lot with uh, Anita Morjani. Yeah. That story, I wish I, wish I could have gotten that story into my hands sooner. Well, and, and Anita had the same story. She totally repressed herself yep. until her near-death experience yep. uh, actually woke her up to embrace herself. And that allowed her to survive a so-called terminal diagnosis. I, I've talked with Anita, uh, and, and her story is completely representative of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Basically that she was in the hospital, she was literally given two weeks to live, malignancy all over her body, and she then realized that she hadn't been herself. Well, her, the title of her book, Dying to Be Me, she literally almost right. died to have to become right. herself. It's a brilliant title. It is a brilliant title. She had lymphoma just like my mom did for a while. I'm sorry, that's what you just said. Yeah, I, I was just saying that my mom also passed away. She died uh, five, six years ago from a heart attack, but that was a result of all the chemo that she'd had. Um, mm-hmm. But she too, I think, was not really herself mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about the very practical moment when there is anger in the body. Mm-hmm. And I think this is helpful for our listener to hear you say it rather than me, but Animals have been studied, as you mentioned. The incident ends, the boundary-creating incident ends, two animals angry at each other for whatever reason. Boundary defense, all animals have it. One says this, the other one walks away, everything ends, boom. Present moment, that's basically a reflection of emotional competency. 
But when the incident ends, as in humans, we're so human, and the anger continues, that's the danger zone. Well, if anybody's inspired to read my book, When the Body Says No, I discussed this in quite detail in, in the very last chapter about yes. healthy anger and how we experience it. But rather than going there, let me tell you a funny anecdote that I read in one of Eckhart Tolle's books, The Spirit. Mm. And he says, imagine two ducks, and one of them comes too close to the other one. So, you know, they ruffle their feathers, and, and the other one swims away. And the first duck says, oh, that guy, he's always coming close to me. He did it last week. I bet he's going to do it next week. What's wrong with him anyway? I can't stand him, you know? Ducks don't do that. They just rough, they just shake it off, and on they go. But we humans harbor these grievances, and we magnify them in our minds. I know that. I've done that a million times. Sure. And and all that, of course, is an, is an imprint of lack of emotional self-regulation competence, as you say, which is a traumatic imprint. Yeah. I also want to look at the, I have most of your books, but the, the one that really touched me was in the realm of hungry ghosts. Uh, we'll get there in just a moment, but I would love to look at the people who feel, our listener who feels like he or she is carrying the weight of the world some days. And I want to make sure to talk about this because I feel like uh, you talk about it often, kids who take on all their household pain become adults who take on the weight of the world, become sick people. Mm -hmm. um, and I would love to hear from you a little bit to help our listener today to decipher where they are in that narrative and, and how to sort of get away from that. Well, so let me refer back to my anecdote about my healing session with the psilocybin and, and the realization that at one year I took on my mother's pain. Mm. So. I say to people that there's a difference between being socially engaged, caring about the world, compassionate, and being concerned about the suffering that people impose each other. That's all healthy, humane, and necessary, I think. There's a difference between that and feeling crushed by the weight of the world. Whenever you feel that sense of being crushed, you're not in the present. You're in your infancy. You're in your childhood. When you took on the pain of your family that you were helpless in the face of, and as a result, you made yourself guilty for not fixing it all. So whenever you have that overwhelming sense of how terrible the world is and somehow it's weighing on you, it's a childhood imprint. Recognize it. And do what you need to do to, to address it, mm. but don't believe it. Again, there's a difference between genuine social responsibility, which I wish we all had, and that overweening sense of burden about how the world is. Right. It's interesting how, um, it's such a tempting thing to emphasize that feeling of being burdened by the weight of the world. It's such an easy, it's like almost a lazy sensation. It's interesting because there's an old joke uh, or, or a funny phrase that goes, uh, I think a lot about suffering, about oppression, about hunger, about war. I think a lot about these things 
it helps me keep my mind off things. <laughs> yeah. In other words, in, in looking at all those, in, in obsessing about all that, I have the comfort of not looking at myself. Right, right. And yet to realize through the course of this conversation and all the many books that you've written that, in fact, all our mental health issues and most physical issues are rooted in childhood uh, compensations. That's the point I'm certainly making in my new book. And yeah. And furthermore, they're not individual manifestations. They are manifestations of our social circumstances. And uh, therefore, an illness in a person is not an individual event. It's an event reflecting their milieu. Right. Their context. Yeah. The collective. So, so let me give you an example. A study out of Harvard two years ago showed that the women with... Um, severe post-traumatic stress disorder have doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. And the milder their symptoms, the less their risk for ovarian cancer is. Now, again, I'm talking about the mind-body unity or what the seminal researcher Candice Perth called the body-mind. And of course, these emotional stresses affect your immune system, your hormones, everything. And there's no, it's no surprise to me that mm -hmm. particular study, but Nobody gets post-traumatic stress disorder in isolation. It's not an individual event. It happens in a context. So the PTSD of a person actually reflects a social experience in a certain milieu. So that disease represents not an individual physiology gone awry, but a social event. Wow. Several people close to me that I think of right now whose, you know, parent or parents were addicts or in some way under some very serious trauma. And then the kids carry it and then they bring it to school and they bring it to their future partners and they bring it to their children. Yeah, or the kids develop ADHD or they develop depression or anxiety or so-called oppositional defined disorder, so-called because it doesn't even exist. Um, Let's talk about that. About ODD? Let's talk about ODD, ADHD, anxiety, depression. I know that you have a very serious stance on even asthma, that these are all caused by serotonin levels being stressed, being set rather early in childhood by our relationships with our parents, stressed parents. Let's talk about that because I think that's going to be helpful for our listener today. Well, let's look at asthma for a second. <clears throat> so how do we treat asthma? Have, do you know anybody with asthma? I do, in fact, and I have some stories about it too, yes. Do you know how they're treated? Do you know what medications they're getting? Now, of course, the adrenaline inhaler yeah. uh, being the main one. And the, and probably a cortisol inhaler as well. Right, of Just, course. No. What are adrenaline and cortisol? <laughs> oh, wow. I never thought about it like this until this moment. Wow. This is why you pay me the big bucks. Clearly, these are hormones that are released in order to mitigate a stress response. These are the body's stress hormones. Now, do you think, now, if you actually look at cortisol or, or steroids, all across medicine, if you go to a dermatologist with an inflamed skin, what kind of cream are they going to give you? Corticosteroids. 
If you go to a rheumatologist with inflamed joints, what are they going to give you? <laughs> Steroids. Oh, man. If you have a flare-up of your multiple sclerosis, what are they going to give you? Steroids. Right. These are, these are the most commonly used medications across all of, you know, clinical practice. Now, you think it might occur to us to ask ourselves, gosh, we're giving us stress hormones for everything. Could it be that stress has something to do with the onset of these conditions? And in fact, the literature is not even vaguely controversial. If you look at multiple sclerosis, if you look at the rheumatoid arthritis, if you look at uh, asthma, lots of research shows that the more stressed you are, the greater the risk of these conditions arising. Wow. Now, when it comes to ADHD and so on, uh, which I've been diagnosed with, it, that was my first book, um, the Canadian title was Scattered Minds. Um, and I was diagnosed with it in my 50s, but it never, I never bought into the idea that it's a genetic disease here. First, it's not a disease. Secondly, it's not genetic, even though two of my kids have it. Still not genetic. Because when you think about ADHD, what is the hallmark of it? It's the tuning out. It's the absent-mindedness, right? Right. Now, what is tuning out? Coping mechanism, obviously. Exactly. You, call, you, you tune out when it's too much for you. Now, what do you think it was like for me as a one-year-old? Right. You know, what else would I do but tune out? Could I run away or fight back or escape? I couldn't do any of that. Wow. I tune out. Then that tuning out becomes um, wired into the brain. And some years later, they say, you got this genetic disease called ADHD. No, I don't. You just have, have a lot of practice tuning out. <laughs> I have too much practice tuning out. Wow. You know, and, and that, of course, affects the brain chemistry. Of course. But the brain chemistry is not the cause of it. It's a response to it. So the moment the child is feeling unsupported, the tuning out happens, and then that child gets diagnosed as having ADD or ADHD, when in fact the child just needs some different kind of support. Well, something has happened in that child's brain because these events do, do influence the brain development. We know that. I see. The brain does develop under the impact of the environment. So which circuits uh, connect properly and which don't, which chemicals and in what mm. quantities are present, these are all responses to the environment. I can change your brain chemistry by how, how I treat you over time. I'm not talking about medications. I'm talking about emotionally. And, and children are particularly vulnerable for that. So that, it's not that there's nothing going on in the brain, but the brain is not the primary um, origin of it. The origin of it is the environment and the impact on the brain of the environment, which means... If you're going to treat these kids, how about instead of just medicating them, or how about most of the time not even medicating them, but changing their environment so their brain can develop in a healthy way? Mm. But wow. to, physicians are not trained that way. We're trained to hand out pills. And let's talk about depression for a moment. I would love to hear you speak a little bit on that for our listener as well. Well, it's self-explanatory. What, what does it mean to depress something? Push down. Yeah, what gets, what gets pushed down in depression? Right. The emotional body, pain. Anger. Anger, right. Uh, emotions. Because when children get the message that their emotions are not acceptable, if they listen to some misbegotten, misguided psychologist, of which there's plenty around, mm. that angry kids should be made to sit timeouts, you're giving the kid a message that their anger is unacceptable. No, the kid needs to belong to you, needs to connect with you, needs to attach with you. He or his brain will do anything to maintain that connection. 
if it takes pushing down, depressing that anger, he'll do that. And then, some years later, he's diagnosed with this disease of depression. It's not a disease, it acts like one, but it isn't one fundamentally. It began as a coping mechanism. It's awful simple, isn't it? It is so simple. The When your body says no, the, the main tenet is that the conditions that we experience in the body are the teachers. Exactly. It is that simple. It is. And, 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 and you know, in this new book, I have a chapter called The Diseases Teacher. Now, I don't recommend it to anybody that they should learn to be themselves the way Anita Morjani had to learn. I don't recommend that they get multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis or depression. But once they do get them, they can learn a lot from the disease. And what they learn can actually help heal them. You talk in, uh, in the realm of hungry ghosts. I'm on page 279, mm-hmm. a page that I've double dog-eared. The Torah says that Aharon, the brother of Moses, was commanded to take two hairy goats and bring them before God. Upon each, he was to place a lot, a marker. On one, he was to place the lot of the people's sins to, quote, effect atonement upon it and send it away to Azazel into the wilderness. This was the scapegoat who, cast out, must escape to the desert. The drug addict, you posit, is today's scapegoat. Viewed honestly, much of our culture is geared toward enticing us away from ourselves into externally directed activity, into diverting the mind from ennui and distress. The hardcore addict surrenders her pretense about that. Her life is all about escape. And the rest of us can, with varying success, maintain our charade. But to do so, we banish her to the margins of society. I, Upon reading that, I, I realized what was happening to me and what I had chosen, less what was happening, but what I'd chosen to do with my body and to do with my time for all those years. I wasn't a terrible, like, in-the-gutter case, but... Uh, you know, I was smoking weed every single day, every single morning, uh, mm-hmm. most evenings. Um, and then I read this that you said, if you can see without judgment, the healthy person within all that trauma, <laughs> the person who just didn't get to express themselves, you are trauma informed. And somehow these two things came together in one sort of uh, month or two. And I realized that I had been repressed and I realized that I had not been myself. And I realized that the one thing that sort of helped me feel like I was escaping from this charade uh, was pot. And I had to let it go in order to just be myself finally and be the shining light that I know that I could be. Mm. Um, The trauma-informed part, though, is where I want to go with this because I think there are enough former maybe even current addicts who might listen to this, and I I hope that you just got what I got from that passage, but the trauma-informed part, I think that all of us as humans, as much as we should be tasked to go live in another country as a high school kid for a month, as every single human on this earth should, we should all be going through education to raise children, but I also think that we should all be trauma-informed. 
And I think it would make things so much better. And to that end, I just want to read this again. And then I want, I would love to hear you talk about this. If you can see without judgment, the healthy person within all of that trauma, the person who just didn't get to express themselves, you're trauma informed. It alleviates so many grudges, I feel. Well, it's very easy to sort of um, simplify all that. Let's just look at what an addiction is. You say that there are people who are addicts or ex-addicts, hmm. probably a lot more than think yeah, <laughs> or they realize. So let me give you a definition of an addiction, of addiction. So addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in, but suffers negative consequences as a result of and does not or cannot give up despite negative consequences. So pleasure, relief in the short term, harm in the long term to yourself or others around you, and inability or unwillingness to give it up. That's what an addiction is. Now you'll notice that I said nothing about drugs. I said nothing about heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, nicotine, alcohol, pot, any behavior, I said. It could certainly entail those substances, but of course it could also be sex, gambling, shopping, eating, relationship, the internet, gaming, extreme sports, even spiritual work. Because it's not the activity per se that represents the addiction, it's the internal relationship to it. Right. Now, when I give that definition and I ask how many here, however many people I'm talking to, can identify that sometime in their life, they had engaged in an addictive pattern, virtually everybody puts their hand up. Hmm. And then the question I ask is, and I'm going to ask you this, not what was wrong with your pot addiction, but what was right about it? What did it give you in the short term? <laughs> it's so interesting. Um, I've been talking about this with some other folks too recently. It gave me a feeling of lightness and yeah. freedom. Freedom. And removal from the troubles that I was experiencing. Okay, so it gave you lightness, freedom, and peace of mind. Correct. Are those good things or bad things? Wonderful things. So what kind of a disease give you good things? <laughs> right. But it's not a disease. Right, I see what you're saying. Nor is it a choice, but on the other hand, what you're describing are forms of emotional pain, the heaviness that you tried to escape. Yes. The stress. Yeah. So that's why my mantra, not ask not why the addiction, but why the pain. And that's where trauma comes in. Because you weren't born like that. At some point, the stresses of life got to you so that you lost your peace of mind mm -hmm. and you developed a heaviness. That heaviness probably had to do with what you carried from your own family or origin. Yeah. In other words, addiction is not the primary problem. Addiction is the, the attempted and faithfully doomed, but nevertheless, temporarily successful solution to a problem. And the problem is that of trauma. And underneath that trauma, there's that whole complete individual that has been buried under that 
the event uh, under the impact of life's avalanche of life's misfortunes mm-hmm. and again you know language is so simple if you look at this word recovery have you thought about what the word recovery actually means like what what happens when you recover something you re find it again rediscover it again right now you can't find anything that was never there in the first place can you of course and you also can't find anything that was destroyed of course right and when i ask people what did you recover when you recovered what do you think they tell me most of the time original self exactly they recovered themselves that's what's in there all the time It's funny as you're talking and I look off, you know, sort of to the side and you know how when you look up and off to the side, your mind goes back to the past and mm-hmm. I hear my parents fighting. Mm-hmm. I had a wonderful childhood, but I hear my parents fighting and I hear. Okay, well, well, well I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. Let's run over that again. Hold on. wonderful childhood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, even, you, even you, Elena. Oh, okay. uh, yes. No, no, let's, let's. How old were you when you heard your parents fighting? Mm. I'm seeing like a five, six, seven, eight-year-old person. Okay. Do you have a Do you have children yourself? I do. I have a fifteen-year-old boy. Wonderful. Can you imagine your fifteen-year-old back at age five? Yes, I can. Now let's say he hears his parents fighting the way you heard your parents fighting. What is your yes. five-year-old feeling? So torn. Well, torn is not a feeling. Uh. Okay. Uh. Sad. Okay conflicted perhaps disappointed uh yeah. afraid afraid mm. all right yeah you felt disappointed sad afraid as a five-year-old who did you speak to nobody my dolls okay all right now if your son felt sad disappointed or ang- or whatever at age five who did you who would you want him to talk to you're, you're, you're the parent. Who would you want to talk to? To me, of course. Okay. Now, I know I'm relentless here, but if you if you found out that your five-year-old felt sad, angry, confused, torn, whatever, and didn't talk to you about it, how would you explain that? Mm. Wow. Why isn't he talking to me? The first day he was born, did he cry when he was upset? Of course. So then what happened? How would you explain that at age five he's not sharing his emotions right i'm asking because well because i've inadvertently made it unsafe for him to share with me so he doesn't feel safe in his family of origin right right that was your wonderful childhood mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you for that clarification on behalf of myself and our listener by the way i'm not saying your parents didn't love you of course i'm, I'm not saying they didn't do their best Yes. I'm not saying they were the greatest people in the world. I don't know them, but, you know, for all I know. But I'm telling you, this wonderful childhood is a bit of a myth. Yes. And for for myself and for our listener, you know, to really just recognize calmly and quietly that it wasn't the wonderful label and that we didn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And to recognize that is to do what you did on the mat in your psilocybin treatment session, which is to let it go and realize that it's safe now. Yeah. Hmm. Or that we can make it safe. We can make it safe for ourselves. My son and I have had one of the most 
connected weeks of our lives. And I've, I've re, I even explained to him, I'm, I'm evolving the way that I was treated when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And I am a safe place for you to talk about anything. And he has made use of that in a really beautiful way. That's great. Yeah. I, I just want to thank you. I could go on for hours with you, but I want to respect your time and I want to respect our listeners' time and say that your work is changing millions of lives. And I hope you really feel that. I hope you really feel the gratitude, the awe, and the real appreciation that is coming your way. Well, thank you. On a good day, I do feel it. And good, good. <laughs> otherwise, it kind of... <laughs> like ashes in my mouth, you know, it, just depends, yeah. it, depends on what I'm, it depends on what I'm going through. But thank you. I really do get it. Uh, let me mention, you probably know about this movie, The Wisdom of Trauma. I've just watched it the second time. Okay. So I just... Please mention. I don't know if you're going to air this, but this film made on my work, about my work, hmm. aired and online in June and within a week was seen by over 4 million people in over 220 countries. Yes. And it will be shown again at the end of this month, online for a week, along with a whole set of interviews with trauma experts like Bessel van der Kolk, Dick right. Schwartz, with uh, celebrities like Jamie Lee Curtis and Jewel mm. and, and Ashley Judd and others, and indigenous people. And we'll be talking about indigenous healing. We'll be talking about the trauma of climate change. We'll be speaking about... Um, the trauma of politics. Mm -hmm. So I think it'll be, again, a very worthwhile event and people can check out www.thewisdomoftrauma.com. You're asked to make a contribution because the filmmakers want to make a new film, but if you can't afford it, you just put it down zero, zero, zero for your contribution. You'll still get access to the package. Wonderful. I'm going to fast track this episode so we can get it out sooner than later. Your website is gabormate.com and I'll spell it G A B O R. Mm -hmm. Doctor D R G A B O R D R G A B O R M A T E dot com. That's correct. Cool. And there's a million of my talks on YouTube that there's no nothing to join, nothing to sign, nothing to mm-hmm. pay. You mm-hmm. just put my name into YouTube. You get a lot of talks on addiction, on stress, on parenting, or oh, psychedelics, everything that you and I have touched upon. Yes. And I just want to give one final note of a shout out to my friend, Tommy Rosen, our friend. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but Tommy will be one of the people interviewed uh, in, in, oh, in this next that's series. Great. That's yeah. great. But, but sorry, I interrupted what you were saying about our dear Tommy. No, no worries. That's important that he's, uh, he's shouted out in that way too. Um, he's the reason why you and I were connected. And I just want to say he's also one of the people that I called and texted in the first days of my sobriety and said i'm i'm doing this and mm. he was there he was right there for me and i'll never forget it Ta- tommy my brother thank you so much absolutely and thank you dr mate i i'm so thankful for you truly appreciate everything thank you thank you it's been a pleasure to speak with you bye-bye indeed thank you
Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.